welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Good afternoon and welcome to Themis Podcasts on Modern Slavery and Financial Crime. This podcast is brought to you as part of a key industry-wide research project commissioned by the UK Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner and in partnership with the Tribe Freedom Foundation. This is one of the series that we will be releasing addressing modern slavery and human trafficking. In this episode, I'm joined by Barry Koch, an internationally recognised expert in anti-money laundering and financial crime compliance. Barry is currently the Commissioner of the Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking. Pete Barnes is Head of Financial Crime Investigations at Standard Chartered, and I'm also joined by DCI Nick Dale. He led the investigation of Operation Fort, the UK's largest anti-slavery operation. Nick is also currently the police lead at the National Data Analytics Centre. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks very much for joining, and thanks very much for joining us from the States, Barry. Um, I think what would be great is if I could ask you all just to introduce yourselves and explain to me how you first came across modern slavery and its impact on the financial sector. Um, so Barry, would you be able to start on that, please? Yes, sure. Good morning, everybody. So I have been involved in the financial services industry for quite a few years. Uh, I currently uh, serve as an expert witness in money laundering and terror financing cases for banks and for governments here in the US and abroad. Uh, I'm a former assistant district attorney here in New York County, but I spent much of my career in the private sector at large organizations like J.P. Morgan Chase and American Express and Western Union, uh, either running the anti-money laundering compliance program or the compliance department or serving as legal counsel. And it was in that last capacity when I was chief counsel to the global AML program at J.P. Morgan Chase that our financial intelligence unit developed and implemented the very first uh, financial model uh, showing uh, transactions and account attributes and customer attributes that were red flags, suggestive of labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And uh, we um, had quite a lot of success in developing that model. Uh, I spoke about it around the world. Uh, and some of those uh, presentations led to my co-founding with the Thomson Reuters Foundation of the Bankers Alliance Against Trafficking, which has since spread to Europe and Asia Pacific. And we've published white papers and toolkits to aid financial investigators and law enforcement. So in a nutshell, uh, I've been doing this work for quite a while, but over the last few years have really I've been uh, specializing in the financial footprint of human trafficking uh, and in how the financial sector uh, can combat trafficking. Great. Thanks very much, Barry. Um, And Pete, would you like to go next? Uh, Yeah. Hi, hi everyone. Um, So my background is law law enforcement. Um, I was 18 years in the Metropolitan Police. um, And the last segment of that was in financial crime. And particularly in terrorist finance. Um, but it wasn't really till I joined Western Union uh, in 2012 uh, that I started to understand the uh, impact uh, financial institutions could have in uh, countering human trafficking. Um, and that was sort of under uh, Barry's leadership. And Barry started to initiate a program uh, across Western Union. And I took the lead from a European perspective in rolling out that program across Europe. Um, and I, at that stage, I, I got involved in the European Bankers Alliance uh, and contributed to the development of indicators uh, that could be used to identify human trafficking and got more, uh, increasingly more involved with the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, which is a public and private partnership in the UK between law enforcement and the private sector. Uh, and I uh, now chair the expert working group looking at how financial institutions can work with law enforcement to counter human trafficking and modern slavery. So I think we'll probably get into this later on, but it, it just draws out the point really that 
how do institutions get involved in this? And it is about leadership at the top level in driving the awareness and the initiatives that are required to tackle this problem. Great. Thanks very much, Pete. Um, and finally, Nick, um, how, what is your experience of modern slavery in the financial sector? So hi, yeah, my name's Nick Dale. I'm a police officer with West Midlands Police. Um, I first came across modern slavery back in 2015 as a detective inspector uh, on a violent crime team, um, investigating a number of cases, including what turned out to be the largest uh, case of modern slavery investigated so far in the UK. Um, we'll get onto a lot more detail later, I'm sure, but what struck me at the time was the amount of uh, information held by the police by, and by other agencies, including financial, including banks, that could help understand the picture of modern slavery, if you like. Um, fast forward a few years, and now I'm uh, the, the, the police lead for a uh, data analytics um, project, a national data analytics project, and one of the things we're working on is modern slavery. So understanding how the um, how we can use information and intelligence better to identify networks of modern slavery. And it strikes me that the use of uh, bank data, um, as well as police and other data to do that would be a, a, a very powerful thing. So uh, so that's kind of why, I, why I'm here. Great, thanks, Nick. Um, I might keep with you because I think Operation Fort, um, the largest um, modern slavery um, arrest in the UK is actually a really interesting starting point. Um, could you give a brief overview of the case in terms of how banks were involved in it and um, how you alerted them to this problem? Yes, yes, of course. So just to kind of summarise the, the the case and the investigation to start with, what we were what we were faced with was uh, an, an organised crime group or OCG based predominantly in West Bromwich in the West Midlands, and they had a network of recruiters based back in Poland. They're a Polish family OCG basically, and they had a network of recruiters back in Poland who would identify people who were down on their luck, who were um, alcoholic, had been recently re released from prison, were homeless, were recently out of um, out of relationships and that sort of thing. And they'd, they'd recruit them with a promise of work uh, in England. They'd um, bring them into the UK, they'd accommodate them, they'd open bank accounts for them and they'd um, get national insurance numbers for them, and they put them to work. And essentially, the the, the the modus operandi of the MO was to put them to work, to control their bank accounts, so that when their their wages were placed in the bank accounts, the traffickers themselves took that money out, and they would then give the uh, victims what they felt they deserved, anything between uh, typically between twenty and eighty pounds a week for a full, if not more than a full week's work. And when the victims complained about this, they would receive threats, um, including death threats. They'd be assaulted. They'd be made to feel that the, that the traffickers owned them, that they had to do whatever the traffickers want, uh, what wanted them to do, that, that there was no help for them outside. And if they, you know, if they, for example, they'd have their ID card taken off them and they'd be told quite wrongly that if they left the house that they were housed in, they would be... Um, picked up by the police, beaten up and deported, so things like that. Um, this, this left some quite big footprints for financial institutions, I imagine. Yeah, well, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So so the, we identified a total of 92 victims. We know there were in, in, around about 400 in total. Out of the victims and, and others that we identified, we found 275 bank accounts. Some of the... Um, some of the victims had multiple bank accounts. Some of their wages were paid into other victims' bank accounts. It's a really complicated network of bank accounts. One victim, for example, had five bank accounts in his own name, but a lot of different victims' wages were paid into that bank account. Um, in total, like I say, there were 275 bank accounts from seven different uh, banks. We identified sort of thousands of transactions, including some transactions where we had ATM cash withdrawals where um, where we, we found some of the um, OCG members actually taking the, the victim's cash out of the bank. Um, others where there was clear money laundering going through the bank, where, where sort of large amounts of cash were put in in Birmingham and taken out in, in London. A, a, a big picture, clearly on aggregate, 
when you look at around about two million pounds worth passing through 275 bank accounts over the, the space of a couple of years clearly when you step back and look in aggregate um you know clearly there's money laundering there um the difficulty of course is when you see every sort of individual element and every you know so you've got an individual going into a, a bank who at the time doesn't know he or she is actually a victim because this is very early on in the brainwashing but there are sort of elements that you can identify so they'll go into a bank with an interpreter for example um, when the bank accounts open there's no what we there's none of what we call lifestyle on the bank account so the the normal um, type of activity that you would see sort of occasional cash, cash withdrawals small purchases at shops for, 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 for food or cigarettes or you know that sort of thing doesn't happen in their bank accounts you've got lots of other people's wages going in as I've said you've got potentially when they're opening the bank accounts you've got the common addresses and phone numbers um, and then on a, on a Friday, what, 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 one of the distinct elements of this is one of the main offenders would go down West Bromwich High Street on a Friday with a, with, with a um, pile of bank cards and go to an ATM and withdraw a load of cash. And, you know, we thought half jokingly, we thought, well, what's the, what's the um, chances of people with all these common characteristics, both in their lives and in their bank accounts and in their addresses and all those common characteristics all stood behind each other at one ATM on a Friday afternoon t taking well, their week's wage that. This might be quite a good point to bring in Pete because Pete from your sort of financial angle this obviously is raising quite a lot of risk indicators um, what do you think financial what risk indicators do you think financial institutions can start bringing in so they can become aware of these kind of um, crimes taking place using their um, using their systems? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a great question. So I, I think it's multi-layered and it is multi-layered. Um, and Nick's uh, uh, Operation Fault for memory is uh, a 2015 case. And I like to think certainly with the group of financial institutions I've, I work with um, through the gymlet, we've uh, started to make significant... Could you say what the gymlet is to the uninitiated? Yeah, the, sure, the gymlet is the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force. It was set up as a pilot in 2015. Um, it is now a, uh, a full operating model. It is a public-private partnership between UK law enforcement headed by the National Crime Agency. Um, and uh, it... it covers a number of predicate crime offences. Um, there is an operational model where we very actively support law enforcement uh, on ongoing investigations for a legal gateway, but there's also uh, a strategic part, which is learning the lessons of the cases, similar to those that Nick uh, has just raised and seeing how we start to apply those lessons. So, you know, Nick's very kindly already presented to our expert working group. Um, and there's some Key, key risk indicators that we draw out from that sort of work. You know, we talked about sort of third party cash payments uh, uh, and, and Nick talked about this where uh, people are from uh, all over the country are paying in cash uh, into uh, a person's account. And some of the institutions have taken very decisive action in relation to that to stop that. And that's some of the institutions no longer allow that and you can no longer pay cash direct into a third person's account. Um, but there's also a whole uh, frontline education piece, and again, Nick's drawn out um, some great learning there, and, that, and again, this has been applied in how staff should, uh, uh, frontline staff, the, how they need to raise awareness of those people who are always presented with uh, an interpreter who speaks on behalf of them who may control their passport or hand over um, uh, any deposits that's been paid into the account. Uh, and if I uh, cast my mind back to the Western Union days when we worked with Barry in developing the European Initiative, this is one of the key risk indicators uh, that came at a very early stage. So there's, you know, there's others such as multiple occup occupancy, that's you know numerous accounts uh, registered to the same address. There's another key risk indicator that's been adopted uh, by a number of institutions. 
But I think it's important uh, to um, uh, to next point is it's not just a group of institutions that take this forward. It's a whole sector that we really want to be uh, raising this awareness of and and getting a a standard approach, a, a high level standard approach uh, to human trafficking awareness. Right. Um, and I guess that brings me on to Barry. Um, you've been covering the space for well over two decades now. Um, and listening to Nick and Pete, um, do you feel they're coming up against the same challenges today? Has any progress been made in financial institutions um, tracking and um, stopping modern slavery? Or are we still pretty much at the early days of this? Those are all very good questions and important questions, which I'll answer. But if I may, let me just take a quick step back for some of your listeners who are uh, coming to this issue relatively recently uh, and just provide a little context here uh, as to why this is important and why we're all so focused on trying to make a contribution here. What Slavery is illegal in every country on earth, yet there are 40 million people who are enslaved. Think about that. 40 million slaves in the world, and that estimate, by the way, is probably conservative, but the International Labor Organization says there are at least 40 million slaves when slavery has been outlawed in every country on earth. It is a $150 billion industry uh, along with drug trafficking and weapons trafficking, arms sales, um, it is uh, the largest uh, business in the world, and it is uh, one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing. That gives you some context for for this issue. And when when I was at J.P. Morgan Chase <clears throat> in the early days, you know, we were thinking about this issue and and how we could fight. Uh, modern slavery and human trafficking. And it was clear to us that we were not social workers. We could not provide victim services. We were not legislators. We could not pass laws. We were not the police. We could not arrest the bad guys. But we worked at a bank. And that's where all the money is and was. Uh, and we uh, thought that if we could find the, the money that the trafficking rings were moving and keeping on deposit, that we could help law enforcement take that money away from them. And we could disrupt the networks and we could hurt the networks. And that's how we could fight back because human trafficking is all about the money. It's all about greed. And in that regard, and this is important as well to understand if you're coming to this fairly new, um, it's unlike uh, many other crimes in that it is not committed for revenge. It is not committed to make a political statement. It is not committed by someone who's being blackmailed. It is all about the money. And so when I was at JP and, uh, and Western Union and many of the other organizations, financial organizations that are involved in this fight, they understand that if they could follow the money, they could disrupt the rings and make, um, uh, and make it more difficult uh, for traffickers to engage in this crime. Uh, I can tell you, and I know uh, Pete uh, uh, and Nick will agree, that many of these investigations by the financial services industry uh, have led to victim rescues and asset forfeitures and prosecutions. So this is worth doing. As far as your questions, uh, no, the, the, the industry is not coming up against the same problems that we did 10 years ago, that we faced 10 years ago. Uh, they're different problems. And actually, I would call them challenges, not problems, because they are, uh, they are challenges that can be met. But I'll give you two examples. 10 years ago, when we were starting, nobody had heard of cryptocurrency. Now, uh, cryptocurrency and surveilling crypto transactions is important, and it's part of uh, a segment of the investigative process because more and more cryptocurrency is being used um, to pay for services of trafficked individuals. Uh, second, uh, there was uh, some understanding of the dark web 10 years ago, uh, but not what it is today. Uh, and there is more uh, trafficking going on on the dark web. And there are more opportunities to do surveillance and to generate actionable intelligence for investigations 
by surveilling the dark web. So those are two uh, different uh, emerging uh, areas um, that we were not looking at 10 years ago, but we uh, are very focused on it now and uh, other uh, financial institutions are as well. As far as progress that has been made, you know, there was a, a earlier references by both Nick and Pete to the information sharing between law enforcement and the industry. Those partnerships uh, have worked. Um, the, the proof of concept has been uh, successful um, and those partnerships continue to increase um, and they're good things and I would encourage them. Uh, and I should mention in that connection that the information sharing that we are talking about between the industry and law enforcement is uh, consistent with the right to financial privacy. These are not fishing expeditions. I know from my experience that the industry is very careful about what can properly be shared with law enforcement. Um, these partnerships are now well established and accepted. They are growing. But they're also uh, what we're seeing are more and more partnerships and information sharing associations among the industry. So not even the law enforcement piece, but um, traditionally you saw banks and credit card companies sharing typologies to combat fraud. And you're seeing more of those information sharing consortia um, springing up. Uh, and you're seeing it now uh, in um, some of the emerging areas that I referenced. So there is more data sharing, not just the pure financial, but there is data sharing uh, in geolocation where trafficking is occurring. Um, there's data sharing involving uh, cell phone communications where trafficking is occurring. So those partnerships are really um, something that we should all encourage. And uh, I know my experience, and I think I can speak for Pete and Nick on this, uh, has been that the information sharing partnerships, both within the financial community and between the financial community and law enforcement, have been very good things, and I would encourage that they continue. Great. Well, luckily enough, we have the, the police lead for the National Data Analytics Centre with us. So, Nick, you must have quite a bit to comment on um, how data analysis can be used uh, to target the people traffickers. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, Barry hit the nail on the head there with the with the comments about networks. So I I think there is a lot of um, information, and I don't think this is a uh, an issue that solely banks um, have. I think the, the, the part of the reason for my project is to better use the data that the, the, the police force holds to identify the exploitation and the networks of exploitation within our own data sets. And what we've shown, for example, is by using natural language processing to identify um, language comments on slavery with intelligence logs, we've been able to identify um, 15,000 intelligence logs linked to modern slavery in police data that, that, that weren't, if you like, tagged or flagged as modern slavery events. So this isn't, a, this isn't an issue that's, that's um, solely within the financial industry, but but I think there are there are opportunities not not just to share data better, but also to analyse the data better, to use that network view of, you know, so the interpreters are going into banks to help people open accounts. So who else have they interpreted for? What are the common addresses? Um, what are the common phone numbers? Um, where are those withdrawals happening? And it's the withdrawals of the victims' accounts where that money is being laundered into the hands of the OCG, if you like. It's a it's an extremely challenging area of business, but uh, but but that data would and 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 I do take the point about financial um, pr pr privacy as well. So it's a very difficult balance this, and it's not necessarily that all of that data would be shared with the police. But certainly, if there are flags in relation to the network view of all of those events relating to a number of different people, then that could potentially elevate to um, a, a sort of a, a, an information sharing with the police in terms of that network. Okay, great. Um, and Pete, I've sort of noticed we, we've. I feel we've been talking quite a bit about retail banking on this, um, but. I imagine MSHT, modern slavery human trafficking, is um, a problem for corporate investment banks. Would you be able to briefly explain how they um, they are exposed to this and um, some of the reporting mechanisms they can put in place? Yeah, so 
it's a really good question, but just just for on a turn to that, I just want to really stress the point that both Nick and Barry made. The absolute key to address this is through partnership, um, and that is partnership uh, with law enforcement, but also including NGOs and having the opportunity to look at cases like Fort and others and reflect on how the bad people have used the banking system and learn the lessons from that and apply those lessons going forward to help institutions strengthen their controls, uh, continue to work with law enforcement by identifying bad people and making the necessary reporting. And I think that's absolutely key what, what we do. Uh, and again, you know, that, 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 uh, that question you ask is, is very pertinent to that because much of the work that has been done is, uh, retail focused. Uh, and it's looking how victims may, um, have their accounts set up by the traffickers or how traffickers may launder the funds, um, through the retail banking sector. But really what we'd all like to try and achieve is how um, where the serious money that's gener generated from this type of criminality goes and identifying how it's laundered through the network and then uh, find a way to disrupt it. And I think that is, uh, I, I sort of constantly say, is maybe the next challenge, the next place we need to go to through um, some of this partnership work is understanding um, how the significant funds are laundered, whether that's um, through investment banking, whether that's through uh, real estate. Um, and I think that's once we start disrupting that flows, we generally start to make this unprofitable. And if we want to disrupt and dissuade and deter people from getting involved in human trafficking, making it difficult to move their high values uh, of money generated um, is exactly where we need to get to. Right. Um, and so if this is a problem for financial institutions, what are the sort of, continuing with you, if you, if you don't mind, Pete, what are the sort of protocols they already have in place for reporting these? So, all, you know, all financial institutions will have a, you know, a responsibility to submit suspicious activity reports um, on um, um, any financial crime, any evidence of money laundering or, or um, terrorist finance. So there's a, uh, an established gateway to do that. Um, as I mentioned, through partnership with the National Crime Agency in the United Kingdom, there's a specific uh, gateway. Um, that allows the more direct sharing of intelligence straight with law enforcement on specific cases. Um, but it's, of course, it's been able to identify that activity, right? So that, that, that needs a, um, a multifaceted approach. So that's, we've already talked about partnership in length. It's, it's about working with our partners. It's about utilising some of the technology that's, uh, that's available now to, you know, really force home the principle of following the money and conduct network analysis uh, and support the work uh, that Nick's leading. Um, it's, it's about being able to apply the indicators and there's lots of different publications from the uh, Bankers Alliance, from FATF, um, from the National Crime Agency on these indicators, how do we apply those indicators in the financial institutions um, to more effectively uh, uh, deter and identify human trafficking? Great. And so, Barry, um, bringing your experience in here, um, is this something which um, existing AML and counter-terrorist financing um, legislation is useful for, or do you think there needs to be more regulatory change in this space? So that's also a critical question now. And I think my own view is that we do not need more legislation and more regulation with one and possibly two exceptions. The first exception is cryptocurrency. 
if you look at the ability to uh, buy and use cryptocurrency, the regulation of crypto exchanges is uneven across the world. Um, there is a degree of regulation here in the U.S. There have been enforcement actions for uh, systemic compliance breakdowns by crypto exchanges. But there are crypto exchanges that remain outside of the U.S. where uh, it is much easier to maintain anonymity. Uh, and, uh, and that's an area that uh, should be really looked at very carefully for a possibly a legislative or regulatory uh, uh, being addressed by more legislation or regulation. Uh, the second area is something that Pete started to uh, refer to, and that is outside of the retail banking, you have commercial banking and corporate banking, and there you have issues about supply chain compliance. And you have industries in the manufacturing sector, uh, in extractive industries like oil, uh, for example, where there are often supply chains that are 10 or 12 deep. And there can uh, certainly be uh, traffic labor um, in, in, in those supply chains. Certainly the construction industry, if you look at certain uh, major international global construction projects, like the uh, construction of uh, a large soccer stadium in connection with World Cup soccer and all the related construction around that. The supply chains are 10 or 12 deep, if not more. There is traffic labor, we know that going on. And that too would be an area where, if not for legislative or regulatory um, uh, um, uh, action, um, it, it's at least uh, ripe for regulatory guidance. And related to that uh, is the area, and this applies both to retail banking and to the corporate and commercial banking that Pete was starting to talk about, is that the financial institutions traditionally have not done risk assessments for their risks of being exposed to trafficking. Historically, they have done those risk assessments. They've invested many, many millions of dollars in doing money laundering and terror financing and sanctions risk assessments. Those should be expanded to performing a risk assessment to see whether you are exposed to the risks of trafficking. It might be in the retail context because you have a very large branch network in certain high-risk geographies, or it might be on the investment banking side and the commercial banking side. Uh, and uh, there, there really are opportunities to uh, enhance the due diligence that a bank undertakes before it establishes a business relationship with a company, and that due diligence needs to take into account doing a formal risk assessment, identifying the risks, identifying the controls, uh, and seeing if they're adequate. I should mention that there is a, uh, a tool for this. Uh, it was um, contained in a publication by the uh, Liechtenstein Initiative, the Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking, which uh, was a project that was co-sponsored by the governments of Australia, Liechtenstein, and the Netherlands, uh, and supported by Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus, who founded Grameen Bank. Uh, and uh, the, under the um, uh, UN General Assembly resolutions uh, in connection with uh, sustainable development goals, um, the commission was founded and funded um, to look at how the financial sector could come together to combat trafficking. Uh, at the beginning of last year's General Assembly, uh, I should say I'm, a, I'm one of the 25 global commissioners in that commission. At last year's General Assembly, we published a report. Um, it's available online. It's called fastinitiative.org, all one word, Fast Initiative, Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, fastinitiative.org. Um, there actually are uh, risk assessment tools that uh, banks and other uh, uh, investors can utilize to begin looking at how best to assess their exposure to uh, uh, labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and the like. Okay, that's really interesting. And this, um, I think, Nick, this all brings me on to you in um, Operation Fort, because when we're talking about the sort of protocols banks are putting in place, um, I think one of the findings in that investigation was that the suspicious activity reports 
uh, were rather thin and they didn't actually highlight the extent of the problems. Um, is this something which banks are remedying at the moment? So, so yeah, you, I think you're right about um, suspicious activity reports in that particular case. And, and the reason for that is, as I've, as I've alluded to, really, it's very difficult to identify on an individual basis those, those, that suspicious activity. You know, we can all understand how um, in amongst millions of transactions, if, you know, a, a bank account where £280 goes in once a week and £280 cash comes out. So the majority of the SARS that we received as a result of the uh, bank's activity in this investigation were actually uh, instigated by us. So we would phone the bank and say, we think we've got a victim of trafficking. Um, and the, the bank would look into it and confirm they were a victim of trafficking from their perspective and then submit a SAR to us. So, um, yeah, I, I think until we get to um, that sort of better ability to analyze, to, to, to sort of share and analyze data proactively, that I think becomes something, you know, it, it's still something that is very tricky. And I know there is work going on to, to, to better um, analyze SARS. Um, and I think what we need to think about is how to more proactively generate those SARS in the first place, if that makes sense. Well, because um, I understand you're, you're advising a number of financial institutions at the moment. Um, so where do you, what, what is, the, what is their, their sort of main uh, remedial action which you need to take for them, do you think? What are they most asking you for help for? So I think, I think advising is a bit of a strong term. I don't really think I'm in a position to advise, but what we have been yeah. talking about is um, the use of data and, and the fact that, you know, we all hold a lot of data, um, that it is, if we hold a lot of data, then arguably it's our responsibility to use it to identify uh, and safeguard victims. Um, there are obviously constraints over how we use data, but just because we've got constraints doesn't mean we shouldn't be constantly pushing the boundaries and thinking how we can use data. So um, an example would be, I, I know that I've got, because, because, because I know the investigation and because I've got the, the, the police data as part of my project, I know that I've got confirmed cases of modern slavery where those victims will appear in the, the, the data of a bank. Now, it's quite powerful, that, because what you, what you can do with that is you can train a, uh, an algorithmic or machine learning model to identify how those um, individuals feature in, in the, the bank data and um, identify those features of um, a victim of modern slavery. And as I said before, I think one, something that's really important here is to identify networks. So I will have a, a certain view from police data as to what a modern slavery network looks like. There will be bank data and it might cross different banks and that's one of the challenges. There'll be bank data that shows a network as well. There'll be an overlap between the two, but the bank will be able to have the bank will have information that that, that I don't hold. And similarly, in order to um, help protect the bank from risk, um, the, the, the police and other agencies will hold data that the bank could be useful for, that, that, that would be useful for the bank rather. So I think what it's incumbent on us is to at least prove the concept that. The, the better analysis of that data will achieve better outcomes for the victims and enable us to target the offenders more effectively. Um, and also, as you know, Barry and Peter both said, you know, target those money flows. And it's absolutely right that you know, stopping that stem of money will stop the traffickers because the traffickers are doing this, you know, using people as a commodity just to make uh, in order to make money. Great. Um... Well, I think that's really interesting. And I guess, Pete, uh, maybe stepping stepping a bit back from the data, um, I think one of the uh, things we're trying to do with this piece of research is to really educate banks, uh, whether it's commercial investment or retail banks, about their operational risks. Um, say, for instance, supply chains or money laundering. Where do you see the biggest risks um, of financial crime um, in modern slavery? Uh, where, do, where do you see the biggest risks um, on a sort of macro level for banks? I think I think you know there there's some very obvious risks in terms of um, not identifying money laundering. Um, 
obviously there is um, considerable work that has gone on uh, since 2015, but uh, as I mentioned previously, I don't think it is um, consistent. So there is a very obvious regulatory risk for not identifying money laundering, but there's equally reputational risk um, yeah. in terms of being associated with this. And then just to sort of talk talk about the corporate investment banks as well, I think Barry made a really good point there. So it's not, there's different ways in which banks can contribute to this. Um, so we've talked about it from a financial crime perspective. Barry talked about it from the supply chain. We've also talked about the Liechtenstein Initiative and providing survivor uh, survivors bank accounts and access to the um, financial sector. And there's also ethical investment uh, and how we control and support ethical investment so that the investment decisions banks are making tied to their reputational risk of getting those um, uh, decisions wrong are part of that assessment that goes on on how they invest, how they loan. Um, which is another aspect, I think, um, which again is tied to reputational risk and how the financial sector can uh, contribute in this area. Okay. Um, and Barry, I guess if we are looking to sort of drive change, um, in your experience, where has the sort of best pressure come from? There's obviously a, a political drive, uh, but is it is this going to be civil society led? Is it going to be regulatory led? Uh, or is it still the political um, top cover which is needed to um, bring about a sort of change in thinking about modern slavery? I think it has to be a combination. There are multiple stakeholders, uh, and uh, this I think that while individual stakeholders can achieve some degree of success, and sometimes that degree is quite high, uh, the best formula, the best model, uh, is a collaborative approach. Um, so uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's one stakeholder taking the lead. I think that they each have uh, different priorities and they each come to the issue differently. You know, Pete just recently, just a moment ago, referred to ethical investment. Well, you know, that may not be uh, the, the single most important priority for a law enforcement uh, agent who's doing an investigation. But it's highly important to the board of a financial institution uh, when they are setting their priorities uh, for investment and when they are evaluating their business model. So, and and you know, Pete had talked about uh, how uh, there it, it, it's very difficult uh, to identify the single place where there is the greatest risk. And I agree with him. If you look at risks in the credit card industry. They are not the same as the risks uh, that money remitters face, and they are not the same as the risks that the corporate banking divisions face, which in turn are not the same as the risks faced by retail banking. And then you look at the securities industry where you have stocks and bonds and mutual funds, and those risks are way over on the spectrum. Um, so th there, there are multiple stakeholders. They each have a role to play. This is part of the reason why the risk assessment is so important and where the regulators could actually step up and at least issue guidance, if not actual regulation, uh, um, saying that um, here is how an effective risk assessment can be done. Here's the framework for it. Um, um, because th that could be that could be quite helpful uh, in, in terms of addressing the varying risks that lie in different places across the many stakeholders. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Barry. Um, and I guess as we're sort of looking to close this conversation, um, as you've mentioned, it's um, you know 40 million people's are sort of a low figure for the amount of people affected by modern slavery worldwide. It's a highly lucrative crime. What do you see as the um, most positive developments which banks and financial institutions can implement now to really tackle it? Um, Nick, I'd start with you if that's okay. So yeah, there are there are a number of initiatives, and as as, as Pete talked about earlier on, there's a, there's a there's a number of different initiatives that will help in terms of identifying those flags that are, that the customers are victims of modern slavery. Um, there's the information sharing with law enforcement, which is has, as Pete quite said, you know, since 2015 has come on leaps and bounds. So those are the 
really good things that are happening and and the fact that we're we're having these conversations as well with financial institutions and they they, they really care both about the retail side and 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 sort of making ethical investments um so yeah there is a lot of positive stuff going on in this space great and um i mean pete one thing we we sometimes find is that you have dedicated compliance professionals dedicated financial crime professionals is this a conversation people are having at board level or does it need do, does that a greater need for a focus to bring this conversation to the sort of management board table absolutely i think it's been held at uh, board level some of the dis discussions you know right across those four pillars we spoke about before um there is a crease increasing uh what shall i say social responsibility and awareness of the social responsibility uh, and how banks uh, are uh, viewed and how they position themselves uh, in, a, in um, addressing these social issues. So absolutely, I don't think it's, as I said before, this isn't you know, a financial crime or a compliance issue. This is, from a financial sector, it's a, it's a, a group-wide, a, a bank-wide initiative and raising that awareness across the bank whether it's your uh, member of branch staff who's able to identify the victim coming forward, whether it's your relationship manager understanding that his client uh, is using um, uh, a uh, labor trafficked workforce, whether it's an investment advisor understanding what the funds are going to be used for. There's a whole uh, contribution that everyone in the financial sector can make in addressing this issue. Great. Um, and finally, Barry, I guess you, you've been looking you've been looking at this space for a long time. Is there any sort of examples of sort of excellence in the sector where financial institutions have really got their reporting right? And is this something which you think other other firms might be able to emulate? I think some of that is evolving, uh, but I I like to look at this uh, as a, a, a scenario where the glass is half full, not half empty. You know, the traffickers are uh, not only clever, but they are uh, able to move faster than financial institutions and regulators and legislators. They're able to adapt. Uh, for example, they have moved uh, to cryptocurrency in the dark web. Uh, and uh, so the financial institutions uh, have also have to be uh, adaptive. They have to think creatively. I think from an operational standpoint and from a micro standpoint, uh, um, this does belong within the compliance organization, the anti-financial crime organization, the financial intelligence units. But from a macro level, as you were getting at before, senior management has to buy in. Um, there is competition for resources, competition for attention. In the U.S., there are more than 200 predicate crimes that uh, financial institutions will file a SAR on. Uh, and this is one of, obviously, this is our priority today, and it's our priority on an ongoing basis. But there are more than 200 crimes, uh, and so there needs to be uh, a way for senior management to um, sustain the interest and to sustain the initiative. It's important um, that that the financial institutions continue to do this work and i'll i'll end henry by giving you uh three reasons uh, briefly three reasons why they should do it uh and i have found and we talked about this uh, at the un in the financial sector commission i have found that these reasons resonate with people um they're intuitive with people the first is that it's inherently worthwhile uh, to look at how the financial sector and law enforcement can partner to, to combat trafficking. Um, slavery is illegal, as I mentioned, everywhere in the world, yet there are 40 million slaves. It's immoral, and people have a visceral reaction to, to the idea that we should do what we can to combat this scourge. The second reason is it's economically inefficient to allow uh, trafficking to continue. Uh, I've seen data in the UK uh, where uh, it just costs the government far too much money in terms of law enforcement costs, healthcare costs. Uh, I saw one figure that's fairly recent that it costs approximately 330,000 pounds per
per trafficked individual. That's extraordinarily inefficient. So if you if you're not if you're not going to buy into the the moral argument uh, and you're just a cold numbers person, then look at the second reason. This is just a very uh, um, economically inefficient scenario to allow this crime to continue. And the third one and the last one is that uh, allowing uh, trafficking, certainly labor trafficking, whether it's in the supply chains or elsewhere, uh, it creates market inefficiencies and it leads to missed opportunities. So once again, if you're not persuaded by the moral argument, um, look at the numbers and look at these missed opportunities um, and look at the opportunities to reintegrate survivors, for example, into mainstream financial services. Um, these are three reasons why it's worthwhile uh, uh, pursuing this and giving it uh, increased investment and sustained attention. And that's where we'll leave it. Thank you very much to all our panellists today. Barry Koch, Commissioner of the Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking. Pete Barnes, Head of Financial Crime Investigations at Standard Chartered. And DCI Nick Dale, the Police Lead at the National Data Analytics Centre. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. And I hope this has been an informative and valuable podcast for you. A quick shout out, if I may. As a public-private research project, we are developing an industry-wide response, and so we are keen to speak to as many financial institutions as possible so that we can understand current and best practices. Whether you work for a bank or building society, an investment manager, an insurance house, an accountancy firm, a money service or payments business, a regular or crypto exchange, or any other financial institution, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to either participate or sponsor this research, please do get in touch and we would love to talk to you and your team about what you are currently doing to either detect or prevent any links to modern slavery and human trafficking. You can reach me on henry.williams at themisservices.co.uk or find out more via our research website www.crime.financial forward slash msht. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.